0: Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Lizzie Borden continues. But first, your true crime headlines. A self-described white nationalist is behind bars, facing charges of aggravated, menacing, and telephone communication harassment after a video he posted on Instagram caught the attention of police. 20-year-old James Patrick Reardon of Youngstown, Ohio, Uploaded a video to his Instagram account on July 11th. The video shows Reardon shooting a gun into the darkness with the sounds of screams and sirens wailing in the background. The video was captioned Police identified the Youngstown Jewish family community shooter as local white nationalist Seamus O'Reardon. And the geolocation for the video was set to the Jewish Community Center of Youngstown, Ohio. The attack depicted in the video never happened, but police took the threat seriously and arrested Reardon last week. The day before his arrest, authorities searched the home of Reardon's parents, where they seized weapons, bulletproof armor, and ammunition. Reardon participated in the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. He was interviewed at the rally as part of a National Geographic documentary that was being filmed. In the documentary, a then 18-year-old Reardon speaks about his desire for a homeland for white people. He describes himself in the documentary as a white nationalist and a member of the alt-right. Reardon has pled not guilty to the charges against him and is being held on $250,000 bail. A Texas man was arrested after he allowed his 12-year-old daughter to drive an SUV around an apartment parking lot, and she crashed the vehicle, striking and killing a man who was out walking his dogs. Police say that 42-year-old Thomas Mejia Toll allowed his 12-year-old daughter to drive the black Ford Explorer around the apartment complex. She was pulling out of a parking space when she pressed the accelerator and struck 46-year-old Enrique Vasquez, who was walking his dogs. The car struck Vasquez and one of his dogs and pinned the man to a tree. He and the dog both died of their injuries. Initially, Mejia told police that he had been behind the wheel at the time of the accident, but authorities later found out that his daughter had been the one driving. Mejia was charged with child endangerment and criminal negligent homicide. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, part two of Lizzie Borden. But first, a quick break. Birthdays, anniversaries, holidays. These are the dates that most people mark on their calendar. The Parcast Network marks important dates in true crime history with their new podcast, Today in True Crime. Today in True Crime is the new daily podcast that takes you back, date by date, to the biggest events in true crime history. Whether the crime is infamous or just plain interesting, there's a crime story for every day of the year. August 31st, 1888, Jack the Ripper commits his first murder. October 3rd, 1995, O.J. Simpson is acquitted. November 19th, 2017. Cult leader Charles Manson dies. Today in True Crime is Parcast's first daily true crime podcast. Get your fix with new episodes each day. You'll never run out of true crime again. Crime never takes a day off. And now, neither does Parcast. Follow Today in True Crime for free on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the trial of Lizzie Borden. On August 11, 1892, Lizzie Borden was arrested for the murders of her father, Andrew Borden, and her stepmother, Abby Borden. Lizzie Borden pleaded not guilty. At her preliminary hearing, Judge Josiah Blaisdell pronounced Lizzie Borden probably guilty and ordered her to face a grand jury. Support for Lizzie Borden poured in from around the country. In the Victorian era, most people could not imagine that a lady of her standing would ever be capable of committing such a brutal crime. Women's groups took up Lizzie's cause, arguing that they should allow women to be jurors so that Lizzie could be tried by a jury of her peers. In November, a grand jury met to review the evidence against Lizzie Borden. Among the evidence was testimony from family friend Alice Russell, who stated, that she and Lizzie's sister, Emma, had witnessed Lizzie Borden burning her blue corduroy dress in the kitchen fire just a few days after the murders. Because, as Lizzie claimed, the dress was covered with old paint. Lizzie Borden was indicted, jailed, and held without bail, awaiting her trial. On June 5, 1893, almost a year after the murders, The hotly anticipated trial of Lizzie Borden finally began at the Bristol County Courthouse in New Bedford, Massachusetts. It was just 11 o'clock when a closed carriage drew up at the rear of the courthouse. A deputy sheriff stepped out of it and handed out his hand to assist Lizzie Borden, a reporter from the Brownsville Daily Herald observed. The crowd pressed forward in a sort a frenzy to catch a glimpse of the woman, but she slipped quietly into the building before they were able to do so and walked quietly to her place in the prisoner's dock. Lizzie Borden entered the packed courthouse on the arm of her minister, Reverend Augustus Buck. Lizzie was dressed, as her attorneys advised, in fashionable morning attire and held a fan obscuring her face. With her inheritance, Lizzie Borden bought the best defense that money could buy. They were Melvin Adams, her father's attorney Andrew Jennings, and the head of her defense, former Massachusetts Governor George Robinson. Among the three judges presiding at Lizzie Borden's trial was Justice Dewey, who had been appointed to the bench seven years earlier by George Robinson. Lizzie's defense attorney. Prosecuting attorneys were District Attorney Knowlton and future Attorney General and Supreme Court Justice William H. Moody. Moody opened the state's case. At one point during Moody's two-hour speech, either carelessly or deliberately, he threw one of Lizzie's frocks on the prosecution table and knocked over a bag revealing the skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden. The bodies had been exhumed, and the skin boiled off so as to compare the hatchet found in the basement against the marks in the victim's skulls. At the sight of her father and stepmother's skulls, Lizzie collapsed into a dramatic faint. The hatchet, the defense argued, was too dull to have been the weapon used in the murders, The doctors who examined the bodies of Mr. and Mrs. Borden said that the hatchet head could not have sliced so cleanly through Mr. Borden's eye, and Mrs. Borden's hair was cut through as if by scissors. The prosecution focused its case on Lizzie's inheritance as a motive, her animosity toward her stepmother Abby, her presence at the house at the time of the murders, and the lack of any other plausible suspect. But the prosecution's case suffered a devastating blow, when Lizzie's defense team successfully had her contradictory testimony at the inquest ruled inadmissible, on the grounds that she was never advised of her Fifth Amendment rights and was high on morphine. Additionally, the state wanted to have the druggist recount for the jury his story of when Lizzie Borden visited his drugstore the day before the murders, attempting to purchase the poison prussic acid. His witness testimony was also thrown out. It was ruled too remote in time and irrelevant to the axe murders, as autopsies of the victims' stomachs had shown that they were not in fact poisoned, despite the family's fears during their few days of illness prior to the murders. The state called its witnesses. On June 7th, former maid Bridget Sullivan took the stand. During her testimony, she stated that Lizzie was the only person she saw in the home at the time of her parents' murders, that she wore a blue dress, and that she heard Lizzie tell her father that her mother had received a note and gone out, though Bridget herself had never seen the note. Bridget also stated that Lizzie and Emma rarely shared meals with their father and stepmother, though she insisted that she had never witnessed during her over two years of service to the family any signs of the rumored contemptuous relationship between Lizzie and her stepmother. She always spoke to Mrs. Borden when Mrs. Borden talked with her, Bridget said, I did not see any trouble with the family. a seamstress who made a garment for Lizzie a few months before the murders, disputed Bridget's claim. She recounted a conversation in which Lizzie called her stepmother, quote, a mean, good-for-nothing thing, and said, I don't have much to do with her. I stay in my room most of the time. The most compelling testimony came on June 8th from family friend Alice Russell. Alice described a visit from Lizzie the night before the murders. I think when she came in, she said, I have taken your advice, and I have written to Marian that I will come. I don't know what came in between. I don't know, as this followed that, but I said, I'm glad you're going, as I had urged her to go before. And I don't know just what followed, but I said something about her having a good time, and she said, Well, I don't know. I feel depressed. I feel as if something was hanging over me that I cannot throw off, and it comes over me at times, no matter where I am. And she says, When I was at the table the other day, when I was at Marion, the girls were laughing and talking and having a good time, and this feeling came over me. And one of them spoke and said, Lizzie, why don't you talk? I don't know. Father has so much trouble. District Attorney Moody asked Alice about the blue corduroy dress burning incident. Alice said, I stayed at the house from the day of the murders till Monday morning. I was there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. On Sunday morning, I got the breakfast. After breakfast, I left the lower part of the house for a while, returning before noon. I went into the kitchen and I saw Miss Lizzie at the other end of the stove. I saw Miss Emma at the sink. Miss Lizzie was at the stove, and she had a skirt in her hand. And her sister turned and said, What are you going to do? And Lizzie said, I'm going to burn this old thing up. It's covered with paint. I said to her, I wouldn't let anyone see me do that, Lizzie. She didn't make any answer. I said to them, I said, I am afraid, Lizzie, the worst thing you could have done was to burn that dress. I've been asked about your dresses. And she said, Oh, what made you let me do it? Why didn't you tell me? On cross-examination, defense attorney George Robinson suggested that a guilty person seeking to destroy evidence would be unlikely to do it in so open a fashion. Alice added, I saw no blood on that dress. Not a drop. The edge of the dress was soiled. Alice also recounted a conversation with Lizzie about the alleged note, which, according to Lizzie, arrived for Mrs. Borden the morning of the murders, summoning her to visit a sick friend. Despite a thorough search of the Borden home, the note was never found. Alice said that she sarcastically suggested that her stepmother must have put it in the fire. Lizzie replied, Yes, she must have. On June 16th, the defense called its most anticipated witness, Emma Borden. Emma testified that her sister Lizzie owned eight blue dresses. The Bedford cord dress was made the first week of May at our home. It was a very cheap dress, Emma testified, The painters began work after the dress was made. Lizzie got some paint on this dress within two weeks after it was made. She got the paint on the front breadth and the side. The dress was hanging in the front closet on the day that I came home. I said, You haven't destroyed that old dress yet? Why don't you do so? It was very dirty, badly faded, and I don't remember having seen her use it for some time. The next I saw of that dress, I was in the kitchen Saturday when I heard my sister's voice. I looked and saw her with the dress on her arm. She said, I'm going to burn this old dress. I said, I would, and turned away. Miss Alice Russell was there at the time and said that she told Mr. Hanscom a falsehood. She said he asked her if all the dresses were in the house that were there at the time of the murder and she had said yes. Then it was decided between us all that she go and tell Mr. Hanscom that she had told a falsehood. I have made an inventory of the clothes in the closet on the afternoon it was searched. I was there when the search was going on. Emma told jurors that Lizzie and their father enjoyed a loving relationship. My father wore a ring on his finger, she said. It was given him by Lizzie, She had worn it herself before, and he constantly wore it after, and it was buried with him. Emma also insisted that relations between Lizzie and her stepmother were cordial, even though she herself admitted to lingering resentment over the transfer by her father of a Fall River home to Abby and her sister. "'There has never been a trial so full of surprises,' wrote one reporter covering the trial." with such marvelous contradictions given by witnesses called for a common purpose. The defense poked holes in the prosecution's timeline, which allowed from 8 to 13 minutes between Andrew Borden's murder and Lizzie's call upstairs to Bridget Sullivan. Robinson pointed out the obvious difficulty of washing blood off one's person, clothes, and murder weapon, and then hiding the murder weapon, all within the span of just a few short minutes. At one point, the prosecution suggested that Lizzie had perhaps committed the crime naked to avoid being covered by blood splatter. How could she have avoided the splattering of her dress with blood if she was the author of these crimes? I cannot answer it. You cannot answer it. You are neither murderers nor women. You have neither the craft of the assassin nor the cunning and deftness of the sex. The prosecution rested its case on June 14, 1893. Lizzie Borden never took the stand in her case, simply stating, I am innocent. I leave it to my counsel to speak for me. In his closing remarks for the defense, Jennings said, There is not one particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against Lizzie Borden. There is not a spot of blood, there is not a weapon that they have connected with her in any way, shape, or fashion. Governor Robinson, in his closing speech, insisted that the crime must have been committed by a maniac or a devil, not by someone with the respectable background of his client. He said that the state had failed to meet its burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and that it was physically impossible for Lizzie to have committed the crime within the timeline suggested by the prosecution. Robinson ridiculed the theory that Lizzie might have avoided getting blood on her clothes by killing her parents while stark naked, and argued that the murders might well have simply been committed by an intruder. Before the jury left to deliberate, Justice Dewey spoke for the three judges. It was a virtual direction to acquit. First, he reiterated the defense's point that the prosecutors had relied on circumstantial evidence. Then, in his final words to the jury before they left to deliberate, Justice Dewey reminded them of their duty to Lizzie. If the evidence falls short of providing such conviction in your minds, Although it may raise a suspicion of guilt, it would be your plain duty to return a verdict of not guilty. Seeking only the truth, you will lift this case above the range of passion and prejudice and excited feeling into the atmosphere of reason and law. The jury of 12 men deliberated for just 90 minutes before returning a verdict of not guilty when the verdict of not guilty was returned a cheer went up which might have been heard half a mile away reported the Boston advertiser miss Borden's head went down upon the rail in front of her and the prisoner wept with joy Emma her counsel and courtroom spectators rushed to congratulate Lizzie upon exiting the courthouse Lizzie told reporters that she was the happiest woman in the world. She was placed in a carriage and driven to the station where she and Emma took the train home to Fall River. The following Sunday, Lizzie did what she had always done before her imprisonment she went to church. But when she arrived, Lizzie found that all of the pews surrounding her families were empty. One member of the congregation, Mrs. Duval, remarked, "The whole town is aghast. Lizzie Borden attended church today. I don't know, but if she did do it, isn't church the best place for her?" Undeterred by the town's icy reception, Lizzie determined to remain in Fall River. After a few months, the Borden sisters sold the home on 922nd Street, and Lizzie finally got her house on the hill. Lizzie, who now wished to be called Lisbeth, named her new house, which was located on French Street, Maplecroft. The sisters now had a full staff that included live-in maids, a housekeeper, and a coachman. And Lizzie spent her time traveling to Boston and New York to indulge in her love of the theater. Just five years after the murder, Lizzie was briefly in the headlines again when she was accused of, but not tried for, shoplifting. In 1905, after an argument over a party that Lizzie had given in honor of actress Nance O'Neill, her sister Emma moved out of Maplecroft. Years later, Emma would say of her departure, The happenings at the French street house that caused me to leave, I must refuse to talk about. I did not go until conditions became absolutely unbearable. I do not expect to ever set foot on the place while she lives. Some have speculated that Lizzie was having a sexual relationship with the actress, but there is little evidence to support this. At the turn of the 19th century, Theater people were looked down upon and actresses were seen as little better than prostitutes. Lizzie's unconventional friendships with Nance and others in the theater were seen as wildly inappropriate and Lizzie's parties at Maplecroft outraged their high society neighbors on the hill. Whatever the cause of their falling out, Emma had had enough. She left Lizzie and Fall River for good, and the sisters never saw or spoke to each other again. Lizzie Borden never escaped the events of August 4, 1892, and was ostracized by Fall River Society for the rest of her life. Lizzie Borden died of pneumonia on June 1, 1927, aged 67 in Fall River, Massachusetts. Emma defended her sister's innocence until her death, just nine days after Lizzie. Emma Borden died at age 77 from chronic nephritis in a nursing home in New Hampshire, where she had been living under an assumed name. The sisters, neither of whom were ever married, were buried side by side in the Borden family plot, next to Andrew and Abby, in Oak Grove Cemetery. At the time of her death, Lizzie Borden was worth over $250,000, almost $5 million today. Lizzie Borden, who had always loved animals, left $30,000, equivalent to roughly half a million dollars, to the Fall River Animal Rescue League, and $500, $10,000 today, in a trust for perpetual care of her father's grave. Bridget Sullivan, who left the Bordens' employment after the murders, later married a man she met while working as a maid in Montana. Bridget died there in 1948 and, according to her sister, gave a deathbed confession stating that she had lied on the stand in order to protect Lizzie Borden. Today, the Borden family home at 92 2nd Street, now number 232nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts, is a popular tourist attraction and a bed and breakfast. The most requested room is the guest bedroom where Mrs. Borden was found murdered. Over a hundred years later, despite her acquittal Lizzie Borden remains the prime suspect in her father and stepmother's murders. And children all over America can still be found on the playground, skipping rope, singing. Lizzie Borden took an ax, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.